open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6 as we continue our study in the Gospel of Luke. Merry Christmas to everybody and uh, any kids here, kindergarten to second grade can be dismissed to Children's Church if they like. So I didn't get to wear my robe last night because I was doing the whole shepherd thing, so I had to like get my Christmas fix today. Luke chapter 6. Today we're studying verses 1 to 11. Hope you're all having a great Christmas. Let me just read verses 1 to 11. It's on page 1020 if you're using a pew Bible. It says, One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking, and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Well, good news for you people. It's almost over. We've almost made it. Another 12, 15 hours and we'll be done. No more postcards. I mean, I hope you've written all your Christmas cards already. Uh, but no more running around buying the cards and making the list of who to write to and getting the lists out from last year and then you get a surprise card from somebody you weren't expecting and then you've got to quickly run out and get a card and mail it to them so that they're not offended that they send you a card and you just send one to them. Uh, no more baking. That's, well, maybe you got a little cooking this afternoon, but that's it. No more Christmas cookies for the cookie exchange and you don't have to stress about making you know, just the right side dish to take to the Christmas party so that you can impress people with, with what you brought and making meals for everybody. That's almost done. Uh, the decorating, it's almost finished. You can just pretty much undecorate now whenever you take down your tree tomorrow or next you know, year. Whenever you do that, uh, that's done. And of course, the best part is the presents are almost all done. I assume maybe you got a few more to open, but besides that, you know, you don't have to go to the mall with all the crazies, and you don't have to stand there and try to find a parking lot and get in fistfights with people to get a space. And there's no more trying to figure out, okay, what would this person want? They have everything, and how much should I spend on them? And how much are they going to spend on me? Because I want to spend less than they spend on me. And then someone from work gives you a gift, but you weren't planning on getting them a gift, so you have to go get a gift. And all that nonsense, it's just, it's almost over. 
And I feel like, you know, around this time of year, if you just listen carefully, you can hear all over America just this <sighs> deep cleansing breath as we, we get past this crazy time of year. So I suppose this is a good time to ask ourselves uh, in our weakened, uh, stressed out condition, what was the point of it all anyway? Why do we do this to ourselves every year? And why does it seem every year it was more hectic than last year? I don't know if that's the case, but that's how it feels anyway. What's the point? What's the point? And I ask that question because it is my and our human tendency to always miss the point. That's just the way we are as human beings. We so easily fixate on and get caught up in the details, the to-do lists, the rules, the rituals, the traditions... And it's just how we are. That's easier to stay focused on than the point. And uh, that's what this story is about today. It's about focusing on the point. I had an interesting um, uh, experience a couple weeks ago. I was helping out in my daughter's third grade class. I kind of went in for a day to help with a, a writing workshop. I was just sort of there as a parent. And they had to write a poem about Christmas. And so the teacher began by brainstorming on the whiteboard you know, what do you think of when you think of Christmas? And, of course, all the answers started coming out. Santa Claus, presents, Christmas tree, Christmas cookies. And, you know, and I'm thinking, I'm like, I wonder if there's any kid here that's going to say Jesus. You know, just kind of wondering. And, of course, one kid did, and that was my daughter. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Pastor's kid, that's right. She's like, Jesus' birthday. And it was funny, and I looked at the teacher. And she hesitated just for a minute. Like, hmm, can I write this, you know, without the ACLU arresting me or something? She's like, that's right. It's all started because of Jesus. She wrote Jesus' birthday. And she's like, and anything else, anything else. So then, you know, it was Rudolph and, and elves. And, you know, we went down the whole list. So it was, and I kind of stepped back. And here's this whiteboard with three columns of, you know, five, eight words, ten words each. Of all these things... And then, like, Jesus kind of in there, but all of them about cookies and candy canes and stockings and all the things that you think of. And I was like, wow, we already taught our kids how to miss the point. (laughs) They're only in third grade, and we've already socialized them to understand what Christmas really isn't about. And and I was like, so that's just how we are. And I I don't want to sound like the Grinch up here. I'm not anti-Christmas trees. I'm not one of these people who's like, you should have none of that if you're a serious Christian. I'm just saying it's so easy in the midst of all that human tradition, which is, you know, fine, to miss the whole point of why we do this. And as I said, that's what this text is about. It's about our human tendency to miss the point. Here in uh, Luke chapter 6, verses 1 to 11, we have the Pharisees on the Sabbath with Jesus. It's really two stories put together in Luke. I think put them together uh, sort of thematically to illustrate a certain aspect of Jesus' ministry. It must have been a theme. But anyway, in both stories you have the Sabbath the Jewish Sabbath, which was from sundown on Friday till sundown on Saturday. That's the Jewish Sabbath. Now, we mark the change of the day at uh, midnight. That's when we say it switches over. They mark the change of the day at the sundown. So it's the Sabbath day, and it involves a controversy in both stories between Jesus and the Pharisees, and the controversy is over the proper interpretation of the Old Testament teaching about the Sabbath. How do you keep the Sabbath? And the Pharisees have one interpretation, which tends to be, frankly, kind of superficial and a little more focused on rituals and legalism. And Jesus has another interpretation, which I believe is he gets to the point of the whole thing. So let's just kind of jump into the story. 
chapter 6, verse 1. On the Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands, and eat the kernels. And some of the Pharisees asked, Why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? So here's the picture. It's Saturday sometime. Jesus and disciples are going somewhere, and his disciples are hungry. I mean, these guys are itinerant travelers with Jesus. They don't have a home base. They travel all over the place, and you know they're kind of wandering missionaries. And so they're hungry and they're going through the grain field and they're just picking some heads of grain and taking the husks off, kind of winnowing them and just eating grain as they go. And, uh, and the Pharisees say, why are, you, why are you breaking the law? Because, you know, they were technically doing work on the Sabbath. They were breaking the Old Testament law. Or actually, if you want to be accurate, we could say they were breaking the Pharisees' interpretation of the Old Testament law. Because if you look at the Old Testament, I found this interesting in my study of this, what I found was that the Old Testament is really pretty vague about what constitutes work on the Sabbath. I mean, it talks about not working on the Sabbath, but it doesn't get into much detail. It's pretty general. It, it's pretty broad. In fact, take out your sermon notes. This little insert in your bulletin. It says Luke 6, 1-11 at the top. Uh, not the uh, Bible study guides for next week. And by the way, every week, if you didn't notice, we have Bible study guides. So if you want to study... For next week's sermon, with your Bible study group or just individually, you can use those Bible study guides. Then when you come to church next week, I'll be preaching on whatever that Bible study guide was about. That's what those are for. But this is, it's a little just half sheet of paper, single piece, Luke 6, 1 to 11. And what I did on the front of it was I listed the major Old Testament texts that teach about the Sabbath day. And what I want you to notice, we'll read through a few of them here, is just how general the language is. It's broad. It's kind of uh, nonspecific. Exodus 20, 8-11. This is from the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the aliens within your gates. And then he gives the, the creation reason. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Or Exodus 23:12, Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the slave born in your household and the alien as well may be refreshed. Or if you look down at the bottom, uh, the bottom two give us perhaps the most specific instructions. Exodus 35, 2-3. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a Sabbath rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it must be put to death. So this is serious, all right? This is real serious law. So the Pharisees are right to be serious. Do not light a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath. Okay, we're getting a little more specificity as to what it means to work. But that's it. And then Jeremiah 17:21. This is what the Lord says, Be careful not to carry a load on the Sabbath day or bring it in through the gates of Jerusalem. All right, so you've got a few more details. But, you know, you look at that, you say, that's not very specific. It's kind of vague. And here's the thing. The Pharisees were not cool with vague. The Pharisees did not do vague. That was not their, their thing. Because the Pharisees are all about obey the law. Israel didn't obey the law before. They got punished. They went into exile. We are now, th- those who have come out of exile, we need to do what the law says. So if the law says don't do any work, that's not good enough for them. They want to know what's work. How much is work? Is it work if I do this? Is it work if I do that? 
And, and what does it mean to carry a load? How much can I carry? How far can I carry it? And kindling a fire. You know, so they had, they had all these questions. because they, they didn't want to get it wrong. That was their thing. So what they developed was this huge body of oral teaching. It's basically a, a collection of teaching from the rabbis that got handed down over the generations. Uh, it's called the, the Halakha or the Mishnah. And, and in this big collection of writings, there's all these laws and all these teachings interpreting the Old Testament. And when it comes to this issue of the Sabbath, there's a whole bunch of laws that they wrote explaining what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath, what constituted a violation, what didn't constitute a violation. Now, just to give you a tiny taste, a tiny taste of how <clears throat> in-depth and detailed this was, if you look on the back of the sermon notes, I have a quote at the top by J.C. McCann. And he, he does a good job kind of putting this in perspective. He says, the Mishnah tractate uh, Shabbat 7.2 provides a list of 39 main tasks prohibited on the Sabbath. And these include <clears throat> sowing, plowing, reaping, binding, threshing, winnowing, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, shearing wool, bleaching or dyeing wool, spinning, weaving, tying or untying a knot, sewing or tearing two stitches, hunting, writing or erasing two letters, building, demolishing, kindling or extinguishing a fire, hammering, carrying objects from one place to another, and several more. This list was not by any means complete. The 39 main tasks were further developed and defined elsewhere. Other lists were developed, and the individual judgments of rabbis covered still more cases. So you had this huge casuistry, this huge body of law about what you couldn't or couldn't do on the Sabbath day. <clears throat> and they had that very detailed. And so when they saw the, uh, the disciples picking grain, I mean, what were they doing? They were harvesting... They were threshing and winnowing. They were grinding with their fingers. They were doing work. And the Pharisees were like, whoa, you know, roo, 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 pull over. I'm sorry, you're breaking the Sabbath law. And the theology cops were there to call them on it. Uh, and, and I think you can kind of see, somewhere along the way, they've missed the point. They've missed the whole idea of the Sabbath. You go from the... Um, the teachings on the front page, to, they're just kind of vague, don't work on the Sabbath, to so all this detail. And somewhere along the way, they've gotten so into the trees and the bark and the leaves that they missed the whole forest. They missed why the whole thing was there in the first place. Just like I do. We, you know, like at Christmas, I get so in a knot about all the stuff we have to do and all the to-do lists and all of the the dots I have to dot and the, you know, the I's to dot and the T's to cross, get everything just right. And, and it's so easy for me to miss the point. And that's why I love coming to Christmas Eve services here. That's why I love coming here this morning because I feel like here in church I kind of recalibrate myself and be like, why am I doing all of this and why are we all so crazy? And What's the point of this? <clears throat> and so we have to keep coming back to that. And by the way, what is the point of the Sabbath? Why did God give that law in the Old Testament? What's the, the point and meaning of the whole thing? And you could answer it generally speaking. What's the point of any commandment? Uh, Jesus was once asked, uh, Teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And you remember his answer? I actually put it in the sermon notes on the back. At the very bottom. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. 
So you can kind of boil down the Old Testament to these two commands. In some way or another, if you get into the DNA of all the Old Testament commandments, you'll find these basic building blocks. Love of God and love of neighbor. And in some way or another, they all express one or the other, or sometimes both of those commandments. Think of the Ten Commandments. The first four of the Ten Commandments are about loving God. The other six of the Ten Commandments are all about loving your neighbor. And they're all connected. So that's the, the essence of it. And I think when you look at the Sabbath, what's the Sabbath about? It's about loving God. It's about loving your neighbor. First of all, it's about loving God. It's a day of worship to God. And if you look back on the front page of the sermon notes, you can see that. Uh, look at the second quote from the bottom. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day shall be your holy day, a Sabbath rest to the Lord. So it's done unto God. It's a day when the Jewish people would stop what they were doing and focus on God. And we still do that today on the Lord's Day. We stop and we focus on the Lord. It's a day of worship and a day of uh, loving Him. But then there's the other side of it, which is it's about the good of people. Look at the second quote from the top, Exodus 23:12. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the slave born in your household and the alien as well may be refreshed. Or as Jesus said elsewhere in the Gospels, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the whole point of the Sabbath, anyway, was to love God, a day set aside to focus on Him, and also to love others by giving people a break, by, by meeting basic human needs. That's the point. And somehow, as I said, like we all do, the Pharisees lost that big picture in all of the details and regulations. So Jesus tries to bring them back to the main point. If you look at um, verse 3, Jesus kind of plays the Pharisees' own game against them. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. So Jesus tells an Old Testament story. He's going back to the law, which is what the Pharisees went back to. He's kind of, you know, trumping them, really. And he's saying, you remember this story back in 1 Samuel? There's King David. Actually, he wasn't king at the time. And he was running for his life. King Saul was persecuting him. And David hadn't done anything wrong. It's just that King Saul was jealous of him. So David's a refugee from oppression, really. He's running for his life. He's hungry. He's in the desert. And he comes to the, the tabernacle of worship in the desert. The temple hadn't been built yet. And he comes there and he's like, you got anything to eat? I'm starving. And the, the priest says, well, you know, we don't really have anything except for the, you know, the ritual bread that's in the tabernacle, but that's really for the priest. I mean, that's part of the, the whole ritual thing we do here. And David said, well, can I have it? And he gave it to him. And Jesus is saying, but look, that's the right thing to do. If someone's starving and they're hungry and they're fleeing from unjust oppression... You've got to at least give them some bread. I mean, I don't know what's the ritual bread, but the rituals are not the ultimate point. The rituals point to the point. The point is loving God and, and loving others. And so if my religion, and my love for God, supposed love for God, hinders me from meeting the needs of real people right in front of my face, then somewhere along the line, I've kind of missed the point of my religion. And so I think that's the analogy Jesus is making. He's saying it's kind of like that. 
I'm setting aside this ritual requirement about grinding the grain because my disciples are hungry. And if someone's hungry, you feed them. Isn't that basic common sense about loving your neighbor? And maybe even, I don't know if you want to take it this far, but there might even be kind of an analogy being made here where Jesus is kind of like King David and his disciples are the companions and they're eating grain and he's saying, you guys are kind of like the persecutors like Saul was. I mean, I don't know if you want to read that much into it, but you kind of wonder if, those, if Jesus is using those echoes. So that, that might be there as well. <clears throat> but Jesus is trying to get them back to the point of the whole thing. And then he says this line in verse 5, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And this is where he really kind of trumps the Pharisees. He's like, look, who has the authority to interpret God's law? Is it you and all your rules? Or is it me? And he's saying, it's me. I'm the Lord. And so I'm going to tell you what the Sabbath means. You know, it's like, kind of like the mob boss in the, you know, the, the mafia movies. like, look, look, I'm going to tell you what you're going to do. I still got that accent from last night. I'm still work, trying to get it out of my system. You know, I'm going to tell you what the Sabbath means, and what I tell you it means is what it's going to mean. All right? I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And so Jesus is he's taking up all the Old Testament law we talked about last week into himself, fulfilling it, and then standing as Lord over it as the one who's sovereign as the Messiah. Well, then look at the next story real quickly. Second story. Different story, same point. On another Sabbath, he went to the synagogue and was teaching, and, was, and a man was there, his right hand was shriveled, and the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, get this, were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Well, it's good to know they had their hearts in the right place going into worship. You know, we're here to worship God and to catch that Jesus and find something so we can accuse him and nail him. And it's like, man, just stay home. And, you know, what a bunch of phonies to go into to a worship thing with that kind of anger and bitterness and uh, vindictive spirit in your heart. Like, what's the point? But, of course, Jesus knew what they were thinking. Verse 8, said to the man with the shriveled hand, get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it. What's the point here, guys? And the point is, the Sabbath is about loving God and loving your neighbor. So he gets them focused off of the details and the man-made rituals back on the main message. And it's to do good, to save life, obviously. And then he looked around at them all, and he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And as he did so, and his hand was completely restored. But get this, they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. I mean, you see the irony here? Jesus is supposedly the Sabbath breaker in this story. But I'm like, alright, let's be technical. Let's be all Pharisaic about it. What did he do? He just talked. He didn't go over and you know, rub the guy's arm or put a splint on it or he didn't do physical therapy with it or occupational therapy. He, all he said was... Stretch out your hand. I mean, is it unlawful to talk on the Sabbath? Is it unlawful to move your lips? <laughs> Apparently, you know, he, just, he didn't do anything. He just said, stretch out your hand. So if you want to get all Pharisaic about it, he didn't do anything. He just talked. And they talk, and you talk on the Sabbath. That's okay. And the guy stretches out his hand. And yet Jesus is supposedly the lawbreaker. 
And yet, ironically, the Pharisees go out right after Sabbath synagogue and they get together and they start talking. They get in the huddle. Okay, what are we going to do to this guy? How are we going to get him? We've got to nail him. We've got to take him down. Like, whoa! Who's really breaking the essence of the Sabbath? This is this, this incredible irony here. They're plotting bloody murder and they're supposedly the ones who got it right. Because as I said, if, if our Christian faith and our observance of it, if my Christian faith and my understanding of it prevents me from caring about a real human need that's right in my face, then I've somehow missed the point of what I claim to be. If I'm so zealous for God and doing what God wants that I, I miss you and I don't love you, then I've missed the point. Uh, if my love for God doesn't demonstrate itself in love for my fellow man and my family and the people in my neighborhood, then, then I think I've I got to go back and think a little bit more about what it means to really love God. And I need to get back to the point. And as I said, I think we do this all the time. It's just human dynamics of a sinful human nature. It's easier to keep traditions and to do outward things than it is to, to love. Love is the hardest thing to do. Uh, and it's easier to do those things than to love people. And, and I, think, I was trying to think of examples of how Christians might do this, some analogies. Um, one I thought of was the, the Christian protester who's got the sign and is protesting gay marriage and is protesting abortion on demand. And I would say rightly so. I, I think those things are wrong. And I think we as Christians need to speak out against those things. But, but perhaps protesting in such a uh, shrill, vociferous tone that the people who are on the receiving end of the protest pretty much have no chance of hearing the gospel through us. I guess that's what I'm saying. And then, you know, we've missed something. I, I, think, I feel like something's been amiss in that kind of presentation. Or, or you think about the, uh, the Christians. You know, we do this. I mean, let's be honest. We, we sit in church and, and, you know, you just critique things. It's, I do it all the time myself. Like, you know, like, why does the pastor have that tie on? Or, oh, I like it when he parts on the left instead of the right. Or, um, you know, why are the flowers there? Someone did a bad job with that flower. And how come the big one's over here, but there's none over there? And it kind of is off balance. And why do we sing that song? Or, ooh, they sang that song too fast or too slow. And, and you know, we just, you know, we, we critique these things. We do it all the time. Come on, let's be honest. And then after the service, sometimes we stand around and we talk about it. And maybe sometimes we get really caught up in it. Like, oh, I can't believe it. That. Ugh. And then, you know... And the whole time we're kind of in a dither about the, the surface things. And, and th those things matter. I'm not for just having a sloppy church. I mean, it should look nice. But, but, but somehow we can get so caught up in that that we didn't notice the woman who was new who sat at the end of the pew. And we didn't know she was just recently divorced. And the stress of it all caused her to relapse into drinking. And she came to church because, I don't know, she was grasping at straws. And maybe there might be something here, just maybe. But nobody, you know, notices her because we, our eyes aren't tuned into the main point, which is to love God and love one another. And so we're all caught up in that stuff. And she kind of gets up and, you know, tries to look cool and tries to look like she belongs. And then she walks out and, and then that's it. And we, we've missed why we're here. And, and I'm not saying we do that, uh, you know, here at this church every Sunday. I'm just saying it can happen if we get our eyes off of the main Point. And, and I tie this back into Christmas because I think Christmas is just one of those holidays where it's so hard to stay focused on the main point. I mean, maybe you can do it. I, I have such a hard time. 
I mean, my experience leading up to Christmas is just frustration, tension, exhaustion. And then I get, like I said, to Christmas Eve, and I feel like that's the time when I sort of pull my head above water and kind of, what was I doing? Why are we, oh yeah, Jesus, right? To get back to the main point. And, you know, we think we make fun of the Pharisees because of their laws. Like, oh, those Pharisees, look at all those traditions. You know, what, what a bunch of oh, knuckleheads. I mean, come on, guys. But I mean, look at our Christmas traditions. They're just so complex and rich and, you know, the kinds of clothes you're supposed to wear and how you decorate the tree and who gets to put which decorations on the tree. And we eat this on Christmas Eve and we always have to eat this on Christmas Day and the stockings go in this order, not that order. And, I mean, come on, we just have so many... You drink this kind of food and you drink that and you eat this and we have all these rules and traditions. And the ironic thing is that Christmas isn't even in the Bible. I mean, I hate to burst everyone's bubble... I mean, at least the Sabbath was in the Bible. But the Christmas celebration, the early church didn't celebrate Christmas. You know, Christmas came about because the Romans, because the Christians were, you know, Christianizing the pagans, and the pagans worshipped the winter solstice, and they had to come up with a holiday to kind of get the pagans from worshipping the winter solstice and the moon and all that, and so they gave them Christmas. I mean, I, mean, I hate to say it, but that's where Christmas came from. I'm not trying to say, therefore, we shouldn't celebrate it. I'm just, what am I saying? I'm saying, (laughs) what's the point? It's Jesus. And I'm not trying to be grinchy and saying, if you're a real Christian, you won't have a tree. Nothing like that. Have a tree. Enjoy Christmas. Do your holidays. I'll keep wearing this outfit. I like it. It's fun. We'll keep doing poinsettias. But, But let's just stay focused on what this is all about. It's about Jesus. Because if you take Jesus out, it's really just a glorified winter solstice party. We might as well just be pagans. I mean, who cares? So, but but you've got to keep your mind on Jesus. I have to keep my mind on Jesus. What does that look like practically, just to sum up here? Practically speaking, how would this apply? What would it look like to keep my mind on Jesus, to keep the point in mind at Christmas? And I think at least two ways that that would look. Uh, one is that we would love God. That we would worship Christ. That Christmas would be a time for focused worship of Jesus for us as Christians. That as I go through the Christmas season, I would somehow stay focused on Him, uh, worshiping Him, loving Him, and and that that would really make a difference. Uh, That that I would come to church and I would really be singing the carols. That, you know, however you worship the Lord, that we'd be doing that all through Christmas. I heard a story someone told me about a, a neighborhood Christmas party they went to. And I mean, this is like a huge neighborhood Christmas party. It's almost like a block party. And I guess this, this neighborhood does this every year, and it's been going on for decades. It's this huge thing, and lots of resources put into it. And, and so they went to this thing, and, and they have, you know, the food and all the celebration. They go around the Christmas carol to some of the shut-in people in their neighborhood who can't get out. And it's just really, it's a really nice thing that, that this neighborhood does every year. Um, but I guess when they're Christmas caroling and singing the songs, the only real Christmas carol they had was Joy to the World. All the others were like Deck the Halls and We Wish You Merry Christmas, stuff like that. Um, and then afterwards, I guess they were all hanging out and someone said something like, why don't we sing you know, those other songs? Like, you know, what about Silent Night? And they didn't have the music for that. And so, as, as I'm told the story, there were four people from our church there who, said, who just started singing a cappella without music in front of them, Silent Night, just singing it from their hearts. And as I was told the story, it was kind of like you could just see people being ministered to. As you know, These people, they were singing about, this is real, this is from their hearts. As they sang Silent Night and ministered to all the other carolers. 
who didn't have the music in front of them to go through the motions. And I think that that's what we can bring to Christmas as we go out as Christians to leaven our society is that we can bring the worship of Christ to Christmas and help focus people on its true meaning. And as we just go through Christmas with that spirit of worship, it will have an impact on the people around us. And that leads to the second meaning of Christmas, or the second way in which we can keep our eye on the ball at Christmas. One is to love God, and the second is to love our neighbor. We need to be reaching out to the people around us and loving them. Because we all know this, everybody talks about this, but if you're hurting and Christmas comes, then you're really hurting. It just happens. I mean, if you're depressed going into Christmas, I mean, prepare to like hit even more turbulence emotionally. If you uh, lost somebody this year, and this is your first Christmas without whoever, you're going to feel it really badly this Christmas. It just is the way it is. If you're going through family troubles, Christmas just like amplifies the fact that you're going through family troubles. And it makes you realize we don't have the perfect Christmas kind of situation. Um, so whatever we're going through, if we're lonely, you really feel lonely at Christmas. It's just a time when people are kind of raw, I think, emotionally in a lot of ways. And so it's an opportunity for me as a Christian to tune in to the people around me. But all I'm saying is that if I'm so stressed out about checklists and baking and, you know, kids, get out of the kitchen. I'm trying to get the baking done. We've got to get to the party. It's at four. And, you know, and you're running around. Like, how can I sort of tune into other people who may be right in front of my face that God has put there, but I'm like, you know, I'll minister to you later. I've got to deal with Christmas right now. It's just... And so we have to somehow, I think, not only love God, but then tune into the hurting people in our lives and just be aware of how God might use us to minister to them in, in some small way. <clears throat> As someone said in an email I read this week, I love this, we are living mangers. That's what Christians are. Not that we are Jesus, but we, in a sense, bear Jesus to the world. The way the world knows about Jesus today is through the church. We're the church. We are living mangers. And so we have this wonderful opportunity at Christmas to bring the love of Christ and the love of the gospel to the people around us. But to do that effectively, we have to stay on point, on message, on Jesus, who is really the meaning of it all. Well, before we go to the Lord's table, let's have a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that as you walk this earth, you never lost sight of your point in being here. That, Lord, with laser-like precision, you walked straight to the cross. And you walked without faltering, without failing. And so as we come now to celebrate the Lord's table, we think how fitting it is at Christmas to celebrate communion. Because that's why you came to the manger, was to go to the cross. That's why you came here, was to save us. And so, Lord, as we think about your incarnation, it leads us naturally to think about your your crucifixion, and then your burial, your resurrection, and your second coming. And as we celebrate Christmas, we think about the time when it will be Christmas again and you will come again to save us as your people, to rescue us and bring us home to yourself. And so, Lord, as we go into the communion uh, table now, we pray that you'd minister to us here in a special way, that we would experience your presence this Christmas, that, Jesus, we would know that you really are here in a unique way during communion, that people would, would be ministered to by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, be with us now. We pray all this in the name of Christ. Amen. We have a, uh, a prayer I want us to pray together. It's an old Puritan prayer, so it's 
a little bit long, and there's some these and thous in it. It's kind of uh, that kind of stuff, but you'll 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 do fine with it. But it's a incredibly theologically rich prayer. It's kind of prayer you need to read through like three times to get all of it. And it's about uh, what Christ did for us on the cross and, and how he came. And So let's just read this together as our preparation for communion. O source of all good, what shall I render to thee for the gift of gifts? Thine own dear Son, begotten, not created, my Redeemer, proxy, surety, substitute, his self-emptying incomprehensible, his infinity of love beyond the heart's grasp. Herein is wonder of wonders. He came below to raise me above, was born like me, that I might become like him. Next slide. Herein is love. When I cannot rise to Him, He draws near on wings of grace to raise me to Himself. Herein is power. When deity and humanity were infinitely apart, He united them in indissoluble unity, the uncreated and the created. One more. Herein is wisdom. When I was undone with no will to return to Him and no intellect to devise recovery, He came, God incarnate, to save me to the uttermost as man to die my death, to shed satisfying blood on my behalf and to work out a perfect righteousness for me. Last slide here. O God, Take me in spirit to the watchful shepherds and enlarge my mind. Let me hear good tidings of great joy and hearing, believe, rejoice, praise, adore, my conscience bathed in an ocean of response, my eyes uplifted to a reconciled Father. Place me with the ox, ass, camel, goat, to look with them upon my Redeemer's face, and in Him account myself delivered from sin. I think there's one more. Here we go. Let me with Simeon clasp the newborn child to my heart, embrace him with undying face, exulting that he is mine and I am his. In him thou hast given me so much that heaven can give no more. That's why the Puritans were so great. We come here to celebrate the Lord's table, celebrating the fact that Jesus came not only to be crucified, but also um, to be raised and to ascend back to the Father's right hand. This communion table is a commemoration of Jesus' death for us. This bread we're about to eat symbolizes His body that was broken. And this cup we're about to drink symbolizes His blood that was shed. And we recognize that Jesus is here with us. Not that He literally is these elements, but that the Lord is present at the communion table in a a special way, in a unique way, to minister to His people. We come to feed upon Him spiritually and to be strengthened by Him. And so as we come to the communion table, I ask the elders to join me here. As we remember the night before Jesus went to the cross, and He was there uh, with His disciples at the Passover Seder, And he took some of the matzah, the unleavened bread, and he gave it a new meaning. He broke it and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. 
And Tim, would you give thanks for the broken body of Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a rich gift you gave us through your Son, who you sent to be born here among us to, in such humble circumstances and to die such a cruel death for us, to have his body broken so that our sins could be paid for. What a gift. What a great God. We are so grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And as the elders bring these elements around, would you just take this time to pray and to worship, to pray for those you know who may be hurting and may be needy, and to uh, thank God for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Remember as well that at the end of the supper, Jesus took a cup and he gave it a new meaning as well. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. I can ask the elders to join us again. And Rick Coughlin, would you give thanks for the shed blood of Jesus on the cross? Lord God, how can we give thanks? How, how can we offer anything to you? Lord, uh, I recoil at the thought of, of blood being shed on my behalf, and yet what I hear is for our salvation, I cry out like Peter, then not just my feet, but all of me. Father, we thank you for that blood of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that bringing nothing to the table, you have given everything for us. Lord, uh, let it not just be on the outside, but cleanse us inside as well in the name of Christ. Amen. Lord, our sins have been forgiven through the blood of Christ. Let's drink together. Just so you know, after the service, our prayer team will be here, John and Cindy Norton, and the elders. I will be here after the service to pray with you if you'd like. And uh, would you stand? We're going to sing one more song. Let's worship the Lord together. Go.